0: Pro say Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. This week, Law360 released its annual Diversity Snapshot, a look at law firms' efforts toward diversifying their workforce. The results this year are glum, with firm diversity stagnating. To discuss the findings and ways firms can tackle the problem, we'll be joined by Law360 in-depth reporter Erin Coe. This week, all eyes were also on the sky for the historic total eclipse, stick around to the end of the show when we'll talk about one judge who was having none of it and wanted to focus on legal proceedings instead. As always, I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue.
1: Hello, hello.
0: Nice one. And Alex Lawson.
1: <laughs> hey guys.
2: I like <laughs> this idea of adjudicating Bill's greeting every every yeah, time. Yeah, there's
0: going to be some weeks it's where like, I'm like hey. I I didn't like that Eight one. 8
2: out of 10. Very good. Well, yeah. my
1: my my voice and my ears are all really have these days because I'm I'm blind. Uh, from from the eclipse, yeah, uh, I stared into the sun for I mean, I know th- I got the warnings, but maybe we 'll elect you president. I stared into the sun <laughs> for i don 't know twenty thirty minutes i <laughs> look, i I, the, I thought they were i don 't know fake news, I thought it was that
0: explains all of your copy for the back half of this week
1: right uh and so I was looking earlier, uh do you guys believe the lawsuit has been filed yet about the eclipse
2: i haven 't like, you you mentioned it i hadn't mm. i hadn 't seen one yet. I had a, I had a thought that did anyone see that cool picture of it got picked up everywhere? I forget I don't know who has the original credit, but the uh, the International Space Station like time lapsing across yeah, the eclipse. Yeah, yeah. it would be funny if somebody like on Earth uh, sued NASA and the other space programs for obstructing their view of the eclipse. <laughs> <laughs> just like hey, get the, get
1: that's the
0: manned space hub at. out of my way.
1: <laughs> but I don't
2: know.
0: So but I don't the know that happened, about, about suits though.
1: Uh, there was one filed uh, weeks. earlier Earlier, that was a farm in Oregon that was planning on having a bunch of people, and the lawsuit was about that they were worried about like fecal matter dripping down onto their property because there were going to be th- six thousand people on this one little farm, and there were no <laughs> there was no irrigation, no anything else. That's so.
2: interesting though, because like like the the eclipse boom towns was like a thing.
1: Oh yeah, and, like people but, like you know, and like ruined, like like yeah, a oh, like yeah. a plague of locusts. <laughs> Well, we'll keep our <laughs> eyes
2: peeled to those dockets. Then stick around to the end, yeah. where we'll be talking about the eclipse again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of ground to cover. It's probably. I mean, we're, we're
2: we're butting right up against the end of the news cycle on eclipse content. So we are. We have I mean, to get it in we, now, we, we might and well then get we have, have to in. wait
0: till 2024. Yeah. So right. All right. So what are the actual news stories we're talking about <laughs> up top? What do you want to talk about, well, Alex?
2: the the eclipse is soon to be out of the news. Uh, another thing that's in the news. I don't know if you guys have heard is Nazis.
0: Sadly we have heard. They're sadly, kinda
2: yeah. they're kinda back on their bull here. August twenty
1: seventeen eclipses and Nazis, yeah, sadly.
2: Yeah. And uh, it appears, at least in one instance, that the legal profession is not immune from this phenomenon. There was interesting story came out uh, of Minnesota. There was a partner at a IP boutique up there who was fired when it was revealed that he was actually leading this something of a double life running a record label that promoted neo-Nazi heavy metal bands oh, which is yuck. yeah and that is, is kind of i mean that's one kind of very extreme case but we wanted to talk about it in the context of like these these bigger things Sure. The, these bigger issues so that all come on. up with like with like workplace issues. Sure. Yeah. Let's well, bring it
1: back a little bit. What, what was this? <laughs> you know, mean, what was this guy? What, and what was the label he was running? Yeah, uh, the guy's name was
2: Aaron Davis. He worked for, as I said, an IP boutique called Patterson Thwente uh, in Minneapolis. Not sure the pronunciation there, but that's the that's the firm. Mm-hmm. And it was originally reported by the Alt Weekly up there in the Twin Cities called City Pages. one to credit them? We at Law Three Sixty you know, confirmed it and had our own story but it basically came to light that he was running this um, record label that was called Behold Barbarity Records. Yeah, that sounds right. And it was connected to some neo-Nazi supporting bands. And you might be saying, like, oh, like, how explicit is their neo-Nazi alignment or whatever? Right, was it, like,
1: a little a little <laughs> neo-Nazi-ish? Not
0: right.
2: quite. And I honestly, like, you know, trigger warning or whatever coming up here for some immensely anti-Semitic language, but this is just sort of illustrates how extreme we're talking about here. Some of the bands uh, that this guy, Aaron Davis, promoted at his label had albums and songs with titles like Behead the Semite, Ooh. Kill the <sighs> Jews, and At the Dawn of a New Aryan Empire. So
0: there's no way to... There's nothing around that. This is just very clearly awful.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Was, he using, was he using an alias?
2: or, or what? It doesn't appear. I, I'm not exactly sure on why it took so long or why it didn't, you know, come to right.
1: light. And we talked about attorney vetting a couple uh, couple shows ago. Yeah. You know, you'd think you'd catch the, like, the neo-Nazi record label he's running.
2: Yeah. Well, anyway, so, like, I, you know, long story short, leading a double life as a, if not a Nazi sympathizer, then somebody who's, you know, profiting off of them. Right. Who and, would just use you know, that hateful. Circulating their yeah. message throughout the, you know, community or whatever you want to say. So he got the ax for that.
0: Well, this does, like you sort of alluded to a minute ago, bring up really interesting questions about. So you're an employer and you find out someone is doing something like this, what can you do about it? Can you just fire the person? Are there, Is there going to be any legal blowback that comes your way mm-hmm. if yeah, is, you want to get rid of these people from your workplace? Is
1: being an abhorrent racist a protected class? <laughs> Great question, uh, and I would
2: encourage no. everybody. The answer
0: to that person is no, <laughs> I was saying, but there's I was, other problems. I was going to say, Amber,
1: feel free to jump
2: in at any point in this. You are the one with the uh, employment law training here, but uh, I would encourage everybody to read the story that Braden Campbell, who joined us on the pod, Was that last week? It was last week, right? Or no, A A couple weeks ago. ago, um, Who joined us and he basically worked backwards from this idea of can you fire someone because they're a Nazi? And the answer to the question, to that question in a general way is most of the time, yes. But this is the law where things are not always black and white. And he sort of parses out a couple of different circumstances and laws to keep in mind. So So
0: what were a few of those? Like what were some pitfalls to... Avoid if you're trying to deal with this problem.
2: I just, yeah. I mean, when we're, we're talking here about legal liability, it sounds really weird when we're talking about like, what are some back, what are some like, <laughs> yeah, I don't mean some ways I, that firing a Nazi can backfire. In, I would I mean, like yes.
0: everyone to fire the, the Nazis that they yeah. discover, but, um, you know, the company shouldn't be afraid of doing that. So we're just going to give them the facts of like well, first, what things could yeah. happen.
2: First of all, speaking broadly, if you're a private at will employer, you can fire anybody for a lot of things. Right. Uh, most, you know, with, you know, it falls in, there are certain exceptions there. But, like, you know, speaking generally, at will employees are pretty much at your whim. Now, if we work backwards from constitutional protections, it falls between if you are a private sector employer or a public sector employer.
0: That's a key distinction.
2: Right. And, you know, if you're working for the public sector, you have to worry about sort of stifling people's sort of reasonable political speech. Mm -hmm. And that is an area where you can envision an obstacle cropping up by firing somebody for (laughs) being a Nazi. Although Braden did uh, really good work in highlighting, there was an 11th Circuit decision a few years ago where in Florida, a Florida sheriff was actually... The court said it was OK for him to fire a worker at the department because he had attended a KKK rally. So, mm. yeah. you know, if there is to the extent that there is a bright line drawn, we kind of have some guidance on that front. And there are other things to keep in mind, like the patchwork of state laws it gets really tricky there. Mm-hmm. But the other interesting point in Braden's story is about in in a union context. Which and, we talked about. And this gets back yeah. to a thing that uh, when you brought us that story in the Offbeat section a couple of weeks ago about the guy who posted a profane Facebook right. rant, and it was within, and, and that sort of, this probably gets into something a little muddier than like straight up Nazi endorsement. But if you're talking about things that are could be considered offensive to somebody, as we talked about on that episode, the National Labor Relations Act uh, and the NLRB that enforces it, has basically taken a wide view uh, of that statute and saying like, you have some room to say what we might consider offensive things in the context of workplace organizing or airing grievances right. about the workplace. Although if I remember correctly, the opinion in that case that you talked about was like, this is getting pretty close to the line. Yeah, we talked and about and that, it, but be it was interesting like right up to that end. To see something as extreme as this get tested, but um, you know I, those are the broad strokes. I will
0: not be surprised if we don't have a case like that to talk about later on the pod. It seems like with the sentiment that's out there right now, we're Mm going to hear a lot more about this issue.
1: Nazis hate (laughs) those guys.
0: (laughs) Glad we got that into the pod. Very clear. (laughs) Bill, I know you have a big case to talk about today. Can you tell us about it?
1: Big, like really big, like 417 million big. Yo. Yeah. Uh, Johnson & Johnson was hit with a whopping $417 million verdict on Monday, which is the largest yet in ongoing litigation involving thousands of cases filed around the country over alleged links between baby powder and an increased risk of ovarian cancer.
0: I think a lot of people have heard about this. fight over whether baby powder has been causing cancer but what happened in this case to get us to a, such a big verdict
1: so there was a four-week trial in la um, a jury trial and uh, after two days of deliberations this week the jury came back in favor of the plaintiff ava h of who is dying currently of of cancer the jurors came back and found J liable for failing to warn consumers about the increased risks of ovarian cancer for people using baby powder and uh, that that her cancer was actually caused by the, the use of the products. They returned a $70 million compensatory verdict and $347 million in punitive damages. Now, you mentioned at the top that
2: it's this is just sort of the latest development. We got thousands of cases, I think you said. Yeah, can, yeah. can you unpack the history? Can you unspool the thread for us yeah. in terms of
1: how we got here? So this has been sort of this controversial issue for decades that you know this link or not link, depending on who you ask, between... Right talc, which is the key, which is a key ingredient in, you know, talcum powder, um, in baby powder and an increased risk of ovarian cancer for women who apply it to their genital region. Um, the hard science on it, as I mentioned, is pretty mixed that, that, you know, there was this study back in the, in the eighties by a Harvard epidemiologist that, that first reported this. And there's, there's been some, there's been quite a few studies since then where it, you know, it, it suggested that there may be a connection or said that there theoretically could be a connection. This is often not as binary as people. Would, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a very gray, a murky situation. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's been other studies where, you know, they say that, that there isn't, there just isn't concrete evidence of this, that again, it theoretically could be the case, but there isn't enough for us to say that it causes it or that it's even strongly associated with it. I think the, the American cancer society says that, that more research is needed and that there may have been problems with previous studies and the national cancer, Cancer Institute said that the, quote, the weight of evidence does not support an association between talc and cancer.
0: But that didn't stop people from suing and lots no. of people. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, so in the last few years, thousands and thousands of sick people, it's hard to get a hard number, but it's somewhere between four and five thousand lawsuits have been filed over this, claiming that J&J deliberately sort of suppressed the information about this, about the risks that, that were posed by it, and that that these people have gotten sick as a result.
0: So, what do we make of the idea that the science is maybe not completely clear? It's a little murky. There's some places saying it's just completely inconclusive, um, but we had a huge verdict here. Like that, they, they won. yeah. You'd,
1: I mean, you'd think that when you when you see it, you'd think that it would be hard a hard thing to prove in a court of law. That sure. that you know that that these studies that sort of suggest that it may be connected, and the the few studies that say that it you know that it seems like it would be a hard a hard case, but. But the sort of what we've seen um, from the courtroom results have, have gone the other way, that there were there have been four verdicts in these cases in all in Missouri. And um, they totaled three hundred million dollars in damages against J&J and across four cases, across four about, cases. Yeah. So they n- the largest of those was one hundred and ten million. Okay. So now we have another jurisdiction. So it wasn't just this Missouri Jurisdiction being, you know, friendly mm-hmm. to the plaintiffs. Yeah, it's a different jurisdiction, and it's this enormous four hundred and seventeen million dollar verdict. So we're potentially now in this new sort of even more dangerous for J and J kind of situation where now they're on the hook for more than seven hundred million. I mean, where does this go? There are thousands of these other cases out there.
0: Are we just in a post science world then? What's happening? Well,
1: right. Here? I mean, that's that's what is really interesting about this case. That it's, you know. It, the evidence would would suggest that this would be a really, really hard case to prove that this was, you know, in this case, they, they said that the, the talc caused her her cancer. So, it, you know, it, it raises all these interesting questions about the U.S. system and the jury system. And, you know, th- this conflict of 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 why are they siding with with the plaintiffs?
0: Well, their hearts is what I'm guessing. I mean, it's pretty hard to hear cancer and not have a lot of empathy for these yeah. plaintiffs, right?
1: Yeah. So Daniel Siegel, our reporter on the case here at Law 360, he wrote a very interesting story looking at at these verdicts and looking at the cases going forward and what these plaintiffs are doing well if 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 the sort of the science is against them. And what he found is that they're they're focusing on other things, which sounds simple enough, but you know, they present Information in court about how J&J lobbied to not have to put warning labels on there and they present it as, you know, this was them covering things up. As you mentioned, it's an incredibly sympathetic plaintiff here. It's someone who's literally dying terminally ill. So, you know, it's. And then it's it, it couldn't be a less sympathetic defendant. It's this company that made $16 billion in profits last year that, that we have this evidence of them trying to not put this warning label on. And it clouds the idea that, well, they didn't need to put a warning label on if it what didn't hurt you. But, mm-hmm. you know, y- you can present this story that sort of circles the flaw it's, in the case. It's a
0: classic, you know, big company versus, you know, this really sympathetic injured person. Person. Right.
1: And J&J has repeatedly, I mean, they their case is that we are right on the science. And, and you know, the statement they gave out on Monday was we're going to appeal this. We are incredibly sympathetic to anyone who is 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 suffering from a disease. But the science doesn't point to the fact that our product caused it. There just isn't enough evidence for us to be held liable for this. So but clearly that, <laughs> that didn't work <laughs> isn't getting through. I mean, and, uh, you know, the 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 metaphorical jury is out on the scientific evidence here, but the real thing is is pretty dead set on on who's at fault here, and it it doesn't look good for for J and J, especially with thousands more cases waiting.
0: Yeah, it sure doesn't. Thanks for bringing that one, Bill. Yeah, thanks. Last week, Law 360 released our annual diversity snapshot, a survey of more than 300 firms looking at the diversity of the attorneys who work there, and the findings aren't great. Law firms have stagnated in their push for greater diversity, with minority representation growing by less than a percentage point over last year's survey.
1: Amber, I'm going to have to, <laughs> I'm going to have to break in here. Uh, this sounds a whole lot like the glass ceiling report that we discussed a few weeks ago about about <laughs> women at big law firms.
0: I'm really glad you broke in, Bill, because it's basically exactly like that. Yeah. There's a lot of stagnation going on at law firms, and we hope every year when we do these annual surveys, we're going to see improvement on these measures and we're just not seeing it. So today we're going to be joined by our Law360 in-depth reporter, Erin Koh. She's going to break down these survey results for us and highlight a few examples of the firms that actually are making some progress. Welcome, Erin. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to just get everybody listening today oriented to this report. Can you just give us um,
3: sort of the highlights of what we found this year? Yeah. So one of our main findings is that law firms are lagging behind the diversity we are seeing at law schools. American Bar Association statistics show minorities have made up more than 20% of law students for nearly two decades, and they recently surpassed the 30% mark. Wow. At the same time, only 15% of attorneys and less than 9% of partners at law firms we surveyed identify as an attorney of color. These figures mm-hmm. really haven't changed all that much from last year.
1: So it's not translating into the, into the firm environment?
3: Not at all, No.
1: All right, so that's obviously not good news. The report was was pretty gloomy. Um, are there any are there any are there any stats here that that you know certain groups that are particularly underrepresented um, in in big firms?
3: Yes. So our survey found that Black attorneys are the least represented at every level, especially at the highest ranks. We surveyed over thirty one thousand equity partners and just over five hundred. So that's less than 2% identified as black. And it is actually a pretty startling disparity at the highest ranks for every black uh, equity partner. There are just under 53 white equity partners.
0: That's really shocking. I mean, you can just imagine how isolating that is for many of these partners of color.
2: Yeah. And, I mean, this follows in a lot of the broad strokes of our show about our... Glass Ceiling Report, which dealt with gender diversity, uh, and in that same vein, I did want to ask you. There, we did had we we did have some coverage on a few silver linings about firms that are making some strides towards improving the diversity of their ranks. Uh, if you could tell us about a few of those, I think uh, that would brighten up the room a little bit, at least.
3: <laughs> sure, I'd love to. Um, a few examples are Louis Brisbois um, and it added. 50 minority attorneys, including 20 partners, last year. Hmm. Paul Sinelli, which brought in 34 minority attorneys, including nine partners. And Helen and Knight, which added 20 minority attorneys, including five partners. Um, so, those are some examples, but the attorneys I talked to said what these firms were doing went beyond just focusing on the numbers. And I can give you a couple of examples of that. Um, When litigator Juan Alcala interviewed at and Knight in Miami last year, he was walking past some of the lawyers' offices at the firm, and all he could hear were lawyers speaking Spanish. Mm -hmm. This is a guy who was used to being one of the few Hispanic lawyers who could speak Spanish at his previous firms. (laughs) So when he heard the sound, it put him at ease instantly, and he felt like he finally found somewhere he belonged. Yeah, that probably means...
0: Yeah, it probably means a lot to an attorney when we're talking about these numbers where they mostly go into a very white law firm environment, that if they do hear a whole group of attorneys speaking Spanish, it immediately puts them at ease.
3: Exactly. So I think that did give him the kind of just um, sense of comfort that, you know, maybe he'd been looking for at other firms and just hadn't found it. Um, And he also said that what he really appreciated about the firm was that having diverse lawyers was not just a check mark or a way to improve its numbers, but for them it just made good business sense. So so, so what does that a different mean? approach.
0: Yeah. What does that mean when they say it makes good business sense? Because we do hear a lot about firms saying they want more diversity and uh, people striving for it and they're clearly not reaching those goals, but why should they be? Why should they be focusing on this, uh, not just for the good of it's the right thing to do, but mm-hmm. that it, it works for the, the company, the business?
3: Well, I mean, at least with Juan's um, practice, he's a litigator, but he's also he he works on international disputes um, in the U.S. as well as Latin America. So it, it made sense because you know he had a common language to work with. He understands that culture, and I think that that just that's just been a value add for the firm right there.
1: I also saw in some of our other coverage, in as part of this diversity snapshot, um, stats about you know different general counsel seeking, different in-house counsel seeking diversity stats from from firms saying that, you know, this is part of something that we want from you and that, that you know, this is what we're going to be looking for. And it, so in terms of going out and getting more business, it, it really also matters.
3: Right. Yeah, yeah. I think just when the clients are putting pressure on the law firms, that's when law firms really start to perk up their ears and listen.
0: So... What are firms doing if we have all agree that this is you know, a thing they should be doing both morally and from the business side, and they all say they want to do more? So what are firms doing right if they're trying to get a more diverse group of attorneys?
3: Yeah. Um, so firms are taking a few different approaches. Um, many of the firms I spoke with are intentionally spending more time on recruitment, retention, and mentoring initiatives specifically aimed at minority attorneys. So, Cleary Gottlieb, for instance, is very focused on making sure its incoming summer and first-year associate classes are really diverse. And some firms like Holland and & Knight and Covington and & Burling have agreed to pilot the Mansfield Rule. Um, and maybe you guys talked about that um, during the Glass Ceiling Report. But that's a program requiring that at least 30% of candidates from for firm leadership positions be either yeah. women or minorities.
1: Oh, interesting.
3: So that's what they're doing. Um but what was interesting with uh Lewis Brisboy, um they had some of the highest levels of minority attorneys and minority partners, uh, but they don't have a diversity strategy per se. Um, that seems really counterintuitive. How do they how do they make that work? Yeah, so they just they just have a different focus and their focus um according to Bob Smith, the co-founder of the firm, he said that Uh, When they're looking to hire attorneys, uh, they look for the best lawyers available in each each region, and that has led to a cross-section of the local community. So they just take it from a different angle. They're kind of focusing more broader on a different aspect. And then um, by, I think also by having such a large firm, that also helps with um, them getting higher diversity numbers than maybe other firms.
2: I feel like that's smart because as we as we could, as we've talked about in different contexts, like, you know, it's it's probably unwise. I mean, diversity programs are good in theory, but it's probably not wise to have like some like some like magical percentage number that you want to hit. And then you're done with your obligation to like make your firm as, you know, colorful and as best as it can be. So, I mean, the things that you're describing about just sort of trying to cast a wide net, uh, you know, in the in in the various communities are probably the smart way to go.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think that's definitely that firm's uh, approach. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, uh, Bob Smith was also saying that if for some reason uh, they saw that their firm was not being as reflective of the community, they start to raise their eyebrows going, oh, what's happening now? Because I don't think diversity has been this huge priority just because um, it's something that they've tended to do pretty well at without focusing on mm-hmm. that as the main the main approach. Yeah, let's
0: hope that some of these uh, approaches, be they the straight-up diversity programs or just casting that wider net, start to take hold, and we have some better things to report when we do this report again next year. Thanks. I would hope so. Thanks for bringing this to us, Erin. Appreciate it.
3: Thank you.
1: Thanks, Erin.
0: show is something offbeat, and we're going to do that by getting back into the eclipse. But I'd also like to welcome a guest for this segment, Abraham Musako. He's been our legal industry voice on the pod in many episodes for our long-time listeners. But he is leaving Law Three Hundred and Sixty tomorrow's his last day. Say
1: it ain't so, Abe. Yeah. yeah apparently it is. So,
0: <laughs> what is good enough to take you away from our lovely workplace, Abe?
1: Well, well I'm going to be starting law school at the University of Pennsylvania.
0: Oh, I Never heard of it. Never heard of it. <laughs>
1: Well, don't do anything
2: stupid or we're going to talk about you on the podcast. (laughs) You you happen to be appearing on the segment that you do not want to be on later when you're a successful attorney. That is the idea. Win
0: a case one day so we can talk about you in the up top. Yeah. (laughs) Not at this offbeat moment. So anyway,
2: uh, as Amber said, we're going to get back into some Eclipse talk. And I thought it would be fun. To kind of dissect how this astral phenomenon was impacting the legal world. And we came upon a story out of Florida. There was this uh, gun running trial in Florida that saw an ATF agent who was a key government witness. Uh, He requested that the trial be delayed so he could travel with his family to go see the eclipse. Mm. Which... I mean... But his kid's were probably pretty excited to you go. know, I'm sure he planned it in advance. Yeah. You know, people were really nerding out about this. Anyway, the judge wasn't having it. Uh, it was Judge Stephen Mary Day in Florida. And he issued this really funny opinion. If you Google it, it'll come up. Um, and he basically was throwing a lot of shade at the idea that the eclipse is, like, that special anymore. He's saying, like, like, we're not... This is not the era of the Babylonians. Like, we, <laughs> we know. And
0: also, you know, we rec- we're we in New York City. The better eclipse for us is 2024. I'm yeah. holding out for that
2: one. Yeah, this was for, I'm not sure. I think Florida had a similar percentage as us. I'm not really yeah. sure. I probably should have uh, spent some time on that. Anyway, he was basically saying the nut of his opinion was like, the courts are overworked as it is. We're not going to like delay this whole thing so you can look at the sun for
1: like three minutes. That's basically <laughs> what he said. <laughs> Oof. Well, you know who else tried to go view the eclipse? Allegedly. Who's that? Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. There's now been a FOIA uh, lawsuit or a FOIA request filed to see whether or not the Treasury Secretary and his wife oh. went to use a government plane to, dry, to Whoa, fly down to really? this is This is news
2: in the offbeat, Bill.
1: Yeah, it came out came out like a couple hours ago. That oh a wow. Requ- wow! It's um it's some it's like crew C R E W in, yep. in D C. They filed a FOIA request, so yeah. we will see. It was the same day where she had that Instagram rant <laughs> that got that that blew up on. So it'll. Uh, That'll be interesting. That well, wait for well, the minutians. Was yeah. there some kind of like potential legitimate government purpose for that trip? They toured Fort Knox in hmm. Kentucky. So well, that was like, treasury secretary. Okay. Okay. So okay. It, we'll, it, yeah.
2: I, we'll We'll let the facts play out on that one. Yeah. Uh, as a little bit of color, I did want... So this judge in Florida was having none of the eclipse, you know, impeding upon his legal work. But I thought it would be interesting to talk to some of our court reporters. And we have... We cover all the major courts uh, here at Law 360. And I wanted to see how the scene played out. Uh, at various courthouses uh, around the nation. I talked to Diana Novak-Jones in Chicago, and she basically said everybody, judges, court staff, uh, was having a grand old time, you know, wearing the glasses and looking up. Uh, Stuart Bishop at Brooklyn Federal painted a similar scene. He said, they went up to the roof. Oh, wow. um, And he said... (laughs) it seemed even more planned because he said like the, like, like the marshals were in on it and you know, the judges were up there. And if you ever been in the courthouse, it's like, you know, right next to Brooklyn bridge park. And he said, it was just, it's really nice. Everybody kind of put the BS aside for a little bit. And was like, we're going to observe some. Not adversarial
0: when you're watching the eclipse.
2: No, uh, the award for best anecdote though, of our, of the court reporters that responded to me, this is a real shoe leather journalism. You get at law Three Sixty um, was no surprise. Brian Amaral last week's guest joined us last week. Um, he was on Twitter making noise about just, he, he had this, he was on the hunt to see if any judge was going to be watching the eclipse. And I just, if we have time, I really just want to read his email in full. It's not that long. Please. I saw an assistant U.S. attorney outside just as it was starting. And while the light was getting weird, I jokingly walked up to him and said, what? What did you say? <laughs> and he reminded me that the sun makes you blind, not deaf. <laughs> <laughs> When I told him I was looking for a judge, he told me he saw one walking in a northerly direction down the street. I gave chase, but didn't find. Possibly the prosecutor was lying. Or well, Brian's got, got a bad sense of direction. Who knows? <laughs> the light around the courthouse was sort of eerie, and there were a lot of people gathering around because Boston's federal courthouse is one of the most beautiful spots in the city. But of course, I had an interview at the time with a lawyer for my Top Chef analysis piece, so I did it on a bench while glancing up at the sun without glasses. That is all. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I also as the manager in this room really like that Brian was like I had important work to do and that also ties in with what the judge was saying in that Florida case like important stuff was going on guys. Yeah, I was you gonna, yeah. Know.
2: I was hoping we could Skate right past that. A lot of people in the booth are your direct subordinates here. Yeah, that's uh, true.
0: Yeah, whatever we do for the eclipse, guys.
1: So I toured uh, Fort Knox um, right. with right. my <laughs> lovely wife. Um, it was beautiful. Not,
0: I will not sign off on the expense report for that. Just so you know, it's
1: fine. But we get a lot of money from the government, so right, um, I don't right. need it. Yeah, he's got a so, plane and everything. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah. I hope nobody looks at my emails. <laughs>
0: I was actually working from home the day of the eclipse, but what were people doing here in the office, Abe?
1: Well, uh, we went outside of the New York office to watch the eclipse, and it was very cool to see all the people standing on the street corners looking up at the sky. It's kind of like if any of you remember uh, Independence Day when the alien spaceships came uh, people just standing in the streets, looking up at the sky. Uh, it was even better because annihilation was not coming. <laughs> I afterwards. mean, so far as we
2: know. I as mean, far I as mean, we we'll know, see. we gotta, I mean, it's like six o'clock on Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there may be a
1: clock on this stuff. Right. It's true. Yeah. Eclipse well, ca- aftermath. A, a countdown <laughs> clock that only Jeff Goldblum can discover. Checkmate. Well,
0: thanks for talking about the eclipse with me, and thanks for being with us, Abe. It's been good to have you on the pod the whole time.
1: All right. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for the show today, guys, with Bill.
1: See you next week, guys. And Alex. It was a pleasure.
0: We have several people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Keller Marcano and Steven Trader. We'd also like to thank our guests this week, Aaron Coe and Abraham Musako. Contributing reporters this week include Christina Violante, Melissa Daniels, Braden Campbell, Daniel Siegel, Jackie Bell, Natalie Rodriguez, Abreco, Ed Beeson, and Brandon Lowry. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glassmen. If you want to know more about any of the legal developments we've discussed today, check out our website at law360.com backslash podcast. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks and join us again next week.